Welcome to the NABC Guardians of the Game podcast, where we go inside what makes a coach a coach. My father was a basketball coach, so we, in the public school system in Pennsylvania, didn't have a whole lot uh, to do other than study and play basketball. The Guardians of the Game podcast is a production of the National Association of Basketball Coaches and IMG and is brought to you by Wilson Sporting Goods. And now your host, Coach Dave Odom. Welcome to the NABC Guardians of the Game podcast. Today's guest is the head coach of the Southern California Trojans, Andy Enfield. Andy, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Coach. Well, we're glad to have you. You know, you uh, got up early to be with us today. We want to talk about your program, but we also want to talk about college basketball. But before we do, let's uh, talk a little bit about Andy Enfield and his background. You know, I've done a little research, or I had somebody do this. Uh, I'm not smart enough myself, but uh, you are a Pennsylvania native. And right away, something jumped out at me, valedictorian of your class. My gosh. Uh, I didn't know you were quite that student. Well, I came from a great family with two school teachers as parents, and my father was a basketball coach. Uh, so we, in the public school system in Pennsylvania, didn't have a whole lot uh, to do other than study and play basketball. Well, good for you. I mean, I don't know that I've ever talked to too many valedictorians, so good for you. And then I got surprised again. You went to Johns Hopkins. I thought all the uh, graduates from Johns Hopkins ended up on the operating room as doctors. Not so with you. Well, the medical school at Johns Hopkins is well-renowned. Uh, I was an economics major, but uh, nonetheless, it was a good school. I had a great time in college, and I uh, was fortunate to go there. And you had a coach, Bill Nelson, who I'm sure had a big uh, influence on your uh, basketball career and certainly uh, eventually ended up in, uh, as the head coach at Southern Cal. Sure. You really learn a lot from the – coaches you've played for as well as the coaches you've coached with over a career and coach Bill Nelson was we were part of his first recruiting class when he got the job at Johns Hopkins I learned a tremendous amount from him and assistant coaches Ed Richardson and Bob McCone so they were a big big influence on me uh, how I viewed the game and carry a lot of that stuff today at at USC. And you still hold nine or ten records there I, I was looking at the uh, the uh, Johns Hopkins website uh, you, you your name's all over the place. Well, it was very uh, exciting to play with a great point guard, Dave Eichenberg, and a lot of good friends on that team. So we, we had a enjoyable four-year experience that won a lot of games and at the same time uh, got a great education. Well, you did. And, uh, you know, I mentioned uh, uh, that most of the graduates, a lot of the graduates that come out of Johns Hopkins are, are doctors. I've got a cousin who was a graduate of Johns Hopkins, and he's uh, a surgeon and, and doing quite well. But you got your doctor's degree another way. You became the shot doctor. And I was looking at that, and I'm saying, my gosh, he, had to, he worked with the Bucks as a shooting specialist. You worked with the Celtics as a shooting specialist. And right away I'm saying, what if he taught Larry Bird how to shoot the ball? And I went back, and, of course, uh, the, uh, your years don't, don't uh, mesh there. But uh, uh, how did you become – such a, uh, an expert on the shooting deal. It's just something you uh, picked up along the way, or did you actually study under people, or how did that happen? When I was in graduate school at the University of Maryland, I started a business, and that business was to teach people how to shoot the ball correctly. And the NBA players could pay me, the college and high school players could not, with the exception of 
camps and clinics at the younger grades, or parents could then uh, send their kid to my, one of my shooting camps or clinics. But my goal was to become an NBA shooting coach, and I thought there was a need for it because NBA players are like uh, any other basketball player. They're, they're guys that are great shooters and other players that are streaky shooters in the NBA. And the, the streaky shooters need probably one or two or three adjustments in their shooting technique to become better. And, and so I uh, built a business around that idea and, and was able to then go and get some NBA players as clients and eventually become uh, an NBA shooting coach and an assistant coach uh, down the line. Well, you know, I, I only coached uh, college ball. I didn't coach uh, in the NBA. Uh, but to me, uh, you know, sometimes, depending on the player, uh, sometimes if you ask a player in college to do extra work, it's almost like a penalty. Um, you know, they think they know it everything, and they didn't want to do any extra work. The great ones do, but average guy, I mean, he looks at it as a penalty. In the NBA, I would think, you know, they're, they're playing for their livelihood um, is it easier to get them out of there? Or is it more difficult? Do they want to hear what you got to say? Uh, how does that work? I think it's on a person by player, player by player basis, Dave. Uh, that uh, the college and NBA players are similar, and they do want to get better. However, it's a personality driven, meaning some players want to put the time in and will listen and dedicate themselves to making changes in their in their game, including their shooting. Other players might listen, but really don't have the dedication or drive to spend the hours necessary to make those changes. So uh, I was able to work with a lot of talented players in the NBA that were dedicated to their trade, and they wanted to become better shooters, were, were willing to break their form down, work on their adjustments, and then make it muscle memory because it takes thousands of shots to change. Uh, but I've also worked with a lot of players that uh, it sounded good at the time and, and went to a couple workouts, but then really weren't dedicated to it. So you see that in college as well, and your point is well taken. The, the college players, a lot of them come in, and they've had success at the high school level, uh, and, and they don't necessarily want to change. A lot of players have to fail before they, they uh, recognize that they do need, and then some players just aren't willing to put in the time. So I, I think it's a, a player-by-player uh, situation, and you just have to try to work with the best you can. Okay, from there you uh, kind of moved into full-time coaching, and um it's actually where you and I first met, I think, uh, down in, in Tallahassee at, uh, at, at Florida State University, uh, Leonard Hamilton, who uh, was then and continues to be a very, very close friend of mine. And I go in and I meet this young guy, Andy Enfield, and Leonard's uh, bragging on you not only as a shooting coach, but uh, just as, you know, David, he's got a real future ahead of him and, you know, watch him and help him and whatever. And uh, one of the first things you did to get my attention, you gave me a, a really good Florida State shirt, which I still wear uh, on cold nights in my house. Uh, so uh, you, you did make an impact on me. But um, tell me about the transition into college basketball. And you, you had Florida State there, and uh, you're recruiting and the coaching and uh, working under Leonard Hamilton, who is a lifer. Uh, and I say that in love, and I say that in respect. Yeah, Leonard's tremendous. Uh, when I left the NBA coaching and got married to my wife, Amanda, and we had our first child, Leonard offered me an assistant coaching job on his staff at Florida State. And it was different for me because I'd never coached in college basketball. But because of what you just said about him, uh, I decided to give it a try, and my wife was on board. So we moved to Tallahassee from New York City, and it was the best uh, five years experience in a game, uh, learning from Coach Hamilton 
contributing with the other assistant coaches to help build that program and uh, working with Coach, who is a lifer, uh, to learn how to build a basketball program. Uh, and, and it's more than just the X's and O's. It's more than just recruiting. It's, it's how to really build a program from top to bottom. And, and so I'm very, very grateful to Coach Hamilton. I can't believe it's his 17th year at Florida State. Obviously, they're, they're doing uh, great things still in Tallahassee with him and his staff. So uh, that, that was my first uh, intro to college basketball. And, and uh, then I got to meet great people like you because – when you're around someone like Coach Hamilton has been in the game for 45 years, you will meet people every every city or town you go in. So uh, it was a lot of fun. I'm interested. Um, you know, there's a lot of ways of being a head coach. Some coaches, you know, they hire specialties. And, you know, this guy is a, is a recruiter. This guy is a on-the-floor coach. This guy helps me in the office as a director of basketball operation, whatever. I mean, everything was, you know, it kind of moved into a compartmentalized uh, way of, of doing business, you know, collegiately. Um, I get the feeling that Leonard wanted all of his coaches to be involved in all things so that when they got out to be a head coach like yourself, uh, you would have experienced how to set up a schedule, how, how to, um, you know, handle personalities, how to... Uh, design uh, offenses or defenses, uh, media responsibilities, getting out with the alumni. Is that not the way he did it? Yeah, Leonard gave us a lot of responsibility, all three assistants and the rest of the staff, and that was a great environment to work with. And I try to do that with our staff here at USC, to uh, allow uh, assistant coaches to use their strengths but also expand their knowledge and expand their responsibilities so they are preparing themselves, whether they, want it, whether they realize it or not, they're preparing themselves to become head coaches in the future. And so I was fortunate to work for a boss like that. Uh, we try to do the same thing here at USC, and, and I have three assistant uh, coaches that are just tremendous, uh, Jason Hart, Chris Capco, and Eric Mobley, who hopefully will be ready to do the same thing I did, and that's uh, become a head coach one day. I bet they will. Um, from Florida State, you took the head job at Florida Coast, uh, a Gulf Coast, excuse me, Florida Gulf Coast. Uh, ended up with a 41 and 28 record there. Um, Florida Gulf Coast at the time, not uh, not at the same level in terms of media and and just you know people recognizing it uh, like. Uh, Florida State, or where you are now at, at, at uh, Southern California. Tell me about the challenges that you faced when you went to Florida Gulf Coast, and you had them, by the time you went in, it was, it was like at one level. When you left, you had built it to quite, uh, quite another level, uh, much better. How did that happen? Well, I, I guess uh, the first thing I had to do was put it in the GPS where Florida Gulf Coast was because I'd never been on campus before, and I took the job, and uh, my first day there was for, for the press conference. So uh, I had to first find out where it was. Uh, Ken Cavanaugh, the athletic director, uh, shared a vision on the phone and came to Tallahassee to talk to me and then eventually offered me the job, and I was excited about the opportunity to become a head coach uh, because head coaching jobs are hard to get. Uh, but once I got to campus, I realized that the best thing the school ever did was build a Division One arena, even though the school started as a Division Two school, and it was a brand-new school when we – virtually brand-new when I took the job. I think the school was 10 years old and uh, had only had uh, athletics. It just had just gone from Division Two to Division One. It was in the transition period, and 
my first year there was the first year we were eligible for Division One, uh, the, the tournament, the uh, Atlantic Sun tournament, and possibly the NCAA tournament. So it was a transition period for everybody. Uh, it was a nice situation to come in because uh, as I was a new coach uh, and, and trying to grow as a head coach, the school was also growing at the same time, and, and we were able to uh, really see uh, growth in all areas around. And, and, and it's unlike many established universities where, where things have been doing uh, things the same way for, for decades, this was a, a unique situation. And so uh, we had a lot of uh, uh, great experiences and, and some pros and cons as, as you, you kind of trial by air. And so our first year there, we, we were uh, very competitive. We were able to sign some pretty good recruits uh, in the spring when we got the job, our staff, and then the second year they, those kids developed very quickly and just came together and uh, what, what tremendous players they became. People noticed the job that you were doing. Your name got out quickly as uh, being a, a really good young coach that somebody ought to grab. Southern Cal did it. I mean, that's an amazing thing. I mean, you went from Florida all the way to California as a head coach. And you've been there now for, what, three years now? Is this, no, a, this is our sixth year, Coach. Oh, my gosh. Time, time flies. Oh, it does. Well, I try to slow it down at my age. I don't want it to go too fast. Uh, that's right. Uh, you're there six years, and I think the uh, record right now is uh, 95 and 76 going into this year. Two NCAA tournaments and, and one NIT tournament. Um, it's, a, it's a different job than what you left on the East Coast. It's in the Power Five League. Uh, the Pac-12 is a great league. There's a lot of great teams in there. You're in a major media market. Um, you got two football, NFL football teams there. Uh, you got two NBA basketball teams there. You got a crosstown rival that I won't mention on this uh, uh, program. Uh, there's a lot to deal with. How do you maneuver and get Southern Cal's name uh, on the front burner, so to speak? Well, the first thing you have to do as a head coach, you have to hire a great staff. And we have a tremendous coach. Jason Hart, the associate head coach here, has been with me six years. He's one of the best assistant coaches in the country. What an amazing game coach, X's and O's. He's, he's probably the top recruiter on the West Coast by far. Uh, Chris Kafka has been with us the whole time. And and uh, Martin Bahar has been on our staff. Mike Sweats, Curtis Schultz, our strength coach, came from the East Coast. He was at the University of Maryland in the NFL for a long time, played basketball in Maryland. Uh, so we have a great staff. We just hired Eric Mobley here, who's a basketball. Uh, he played college basketball professionally overseas and has been involved uh, in, in the Southern California scene for a while. So you have to have a great staff with you to have any chance of success. And I give those guys a ton of credit because – we're able to come in and change the culture at USC, recruit talented players, uh, and it took us two years to, to get some recruits in here. Obviously, uh, the first two years were, were tough. We came in last in the Pac-12, uh, but we were had a vision for the future, and, and we kept our plan. And then the third year, we went to the NCAA tournament. Uh, as an 8C, we lost the buzzer. And then the, the fourth year, we set the school record with 26 wins, and we won two games in the NCAA tournament. And then last year, uh, we uh, won 24 games and came in second in the Pac-12, first time in 25 years that happened at USC. We went to the championship game, uh, and, and we're good enough to win games in the NCAA tournament if they would have let us in. But uh, we uh, certainly are, are very proud of our players, Jordan McLaughlin, Elijah Stewart, Chemezi Metu, that they came here that won 71 games the last three years, which is the most in USC basketball history.
We've already mentioned Coach Nelson. We mentioned Coach Hamilton. Uh, they are two of your mentors for sure. Did you always want to be a coach, or did working with them or under them uh, influence you? I think my father, as a high school coach and ninth grade coach for many years, was a, was the biggest influence because when you grow up in that atmosphere, I was I became addicted to the game and I loved the game and that's why I played in high school and college. Uh, but once you get out, you have to make a determination. Do you want to do this for your livelihood? And coaching is a very challenging and tough business. As you know, Coach, you've been in a long time. Your son's in it. Uh, it can be very rewarding, but also uh, it's, it's very, very difficult. And so uh, I, I wasn't sure. I, I worked in the business world for a year after undergraduate. I went back to business school, realized I wanted to get in back into coaching, but I wanted to do it at the MBA level with the shooting instruction and shooting coach. Uh, I was uh, able to do that, and then I went back into the business world after the NBA, and, and that's when Coach Hamilton offered me a job and decided to go uh, make a run at this. But but I wanted to go to college. I love the college atmosphere, the college campuses. You're 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 part of something much bigger than you or your program when you're involved with the university and everything that goes with it. So uh, we we love USC. We love college basketball, meaning my family and our staff, and we're we're very excited here at Southern California. You're young in the game, but still you've got a lot of experience and you came in and the game was played like this, what a, you know, whatever this is. I mean, low post game, uh, centers or postmen were more important at that time. But over time, uh, you know, time takes its toll on everything. And I, I think the game today is different than it was 10, 12 years ago when I was coaching. How do you see the changes in the games today Three-point line has changed really three times. It's gotten further out. Uh, people are playing with what you would call positionless basketball. Duke, I think, is maybe the leader in that regard right now. And, you know, just uh, some of the changes that have come along from a coaching and a playing standpoint. How do you view that? Well, my first job in the NBA was 1994 with the Milwaukee Bucks. So back then uh, you had a lot of uh, – good big men. Uh, I remember Shaquille O'Neal and Penny Hardaway with the Orlando Magic. You had Alonzo Mourning in Charlotte before he moved to Miami. So so you, I got to see John Stockton and Carl Malone play uh, the pick and roll with Utah, coached against them. Michael Jordan was still with the Chicago Bulls. and uh, So so uh, it was amazing to see such great players in that time. Uh, the uh, Pacers had Reggie Miller and, and that crew and Patrick Ewing in New York with the Knicks. So the East was uh, extremely challenging and, and uh, had great players in the West. So uh, my first uh, exposure to the NBA game, uh, we still use a lot of those concepts here, but the game has changed at the college and NBA level. And I think that the European game, the influence has come into play where uh, it is more positionless. Uh, I, I still don't say it, it's totally positionless. Uh, what that means, I think, when you say it's positionless is your, your big men need to have guard skills. I've always coached like that uh, because I've always believed in that. So even at Florida Gulf Coast, before uh, th this positionless name came to play, we always trained our big guys to be able to handle the ball and, and to be able to shoot the three and also make plays. And, and it's very hard to guard when you have four or five guys in the court that can do that, and, and especially playing with two point guards together or combo guards that can get in the lane and, and penetrate and, and, and make plays. So... Uh, it, it, my career has spanned a couple different generations of style of play, but at the same time, I've always know, I've always known what I wanted to do when I became a head coach. And when you leave the assistant ranks and you become a head coach, it's your show, and, and then you have to decide what what to do and, and how you want to play. 
Pac-12 is one of the best leagues in the country. Um, you fight the battle um, of people on the East Coast, that is like east of the Mississippi, um, not really knowing what's going on. Uh, they don't stay up that, that late. And sometimes the scores get lost in the papers the next day. What are you folks on the West Coast doing about trying to get the word back east and get the proper exposure and credit that uh, maybe you're not getting right now? I know the league is doing everything they can do, but I, I think it's more than that. It's, you know, it's BYU, it's Gonzaga, it's New Mexico, it's St. Mary's, all those schools, San Diego State, they're all good schools. People don't know that. Yes, yeah, so the West Coast has uh, exceptional basketball. And you just look at the NBA draft. The Pac-12 has the most draft picks with the ACC in the last six or seven years. And, and shoot, last year uh, we had the number one and two pick with uh, Markel Folks and Lonzo Ball in the entire draft. So the Pac-12 and the West Coast has great players, great coaches. I grew up on the East Coast following the ACC and the Big East. In fact, I saw your teams play. So uh, it was uh, – uh, I never watched the West Coast because I was in bed by 9 or 10 o'clock, and that's when games were just starting on the West Coast, or I was in bed before they started. So I think it does hurt us on the national uh, visibility, uh, especially for, for the NCAA tournament. I think it hurts. Uh, I'll give you an example. Last year, our Pac-12 semifinal game against Oregon started at 9 p.m. West Coast time, which is midnight. And if you watched us play against Oregon, who was an exceptional team, they won 23 games last season. And if you watched us play, you probably would have said, wow, uh, that team looks pretty good, deserves to be in the NCAA tournament. But unfortunately, uh, probably 99% of the East Coast was asleep uh, <laughs> when the game started at midnight. So I, I think that's a good example of just the lack of exposure that some of these players deserve uh, and also some of the teams. And, and you mentioned the, the BYUs and Gonzagas and St. Mary's who have had successful programs for years, and uh, it goes all the way down to the mid-major programs. And, and so uh, the West Coast has just as good of teams as the East Coast, uh, but we are at a disadvantage because of the time change. One of the things that you might do, and I'm sure you do, I think, you, I, think I know that you've done this, is uh, maybe bring your team back east, maybe to a Madison Square Garden doubleheader or tournament or – uh, some of that nature, um, you you really don't need more tough games because your league's so tough. But that might be one way to get a little more uh, advanced publicity for your league and for your team. Yeah, you can always try to schedule games. Next year we are coming to Brooklyn to play in a tournament. This year we're going to Kansas City. I think we're going to Orlando next year in the Advocare. So so we, we try to get back. Uh, we, we, this year we go to Oklahoma to play Oklahoma, which is a great, great team. Uh, so, so we try to do our part. It, it also goes both ways. We like to get uh, more uh, TV personalities to come to the West Coast for the games and, and uh, to uh, be able to go back because certain leagues have alliances with certain TV uh, channels and, and uh, uh, programming. So uh, I think uh, the more things our conference can do and the conferences on the West Coast uh, in, in uh, coordination with um, uh, some of the uh, networks, I think only helps. As we kind of wind down now, I think it's important that coaches like yourself who are head coaches at big schools, you're going to have assistants up under you, and uh, they're going to be watching how you coach and how you manage things. What are some things that you would advise young coaches uh, to take note of and to get involved in that would help their, their career um, and, and their path towards being a head coach themselves? Well, my first – word of advice would be to 
make a difference where you're at and do everything you can to help your program or your team achieve success. And, and the level of success, uh, that will be depending on, obviously, your talent level on your roster as well as what you do as a staff. And, and so don't be impatient as a young coach. Uh, learn and make try to make your program the best you can. And secondly, as you're doing that, prepare to become a head coach. If you are uh, at an age or an experience level where you might be considered uh, what can you do uh, to prepare yourself uh, and, and think about who you can start reaching out to to uh, uh, prepare uh, for that interview or, or, or to get your name out there? So uh, I, I was not in a hurry. I was uh, I was came from the NBA coach at Florida State. I didn't even think about becoming a head coach uh, for four years at, at Florida State. I was just so in tune with what Leonard and the rest of our staff were trying to do. We were trying to build our program. And, and then eventually I got to the point where, uh, hey, um, maybe I am in head coaching candy because my age, my experience level, our success at Florida State. But I never would have been a head coach at Florida Gulf Coast if we weren't successful at Florida State. <laughs> so every day I walked in the office, I was trying to help Coach Hamilton and the rest of our staff to try to build that program. The NABC stands for National Association of Basketball Coaches. It's the governing body for coaches in America. Um, I know you're a, a member of the, and, a, and a strong supporter of the NABC. Uh, tell those that are listening what the NABC stands for and, and how it operates. The NABC is a voice of our game. It's a, a really tremendous uh, avenue to uh, get, it, get the exposure out there for certain issues and also uh, make changes in the game that are needed. And, and so the M NABC does a terrific job. Uh, we're so uh, – Thankful to to have uh, the, the great men and women that work there, uh, and so uh, we're looking forward to playing playing in a tournament here uh, in Kansas City in two weeks, and and uh, should be a lot of fun. Well, I know they're looking forward to having you, and on behalf of NABC, uh, Andy, I want to thank you for being with us today on the podcast. Uh, also, want to thank uh, the fans for tuning in to the NABC Guardians of the Game podcast, and to listen to uh, Andy Enfield who was enlightening in a lot of area. So thanks to everybody for joining us. Um, good luck to you and your Trojans this season. I'm going to try to stay up late as often as I can to see your team play, and I'll be pulling for you back east. And for those that are listening, um, thanks to you for listening today. Um, if you want to learn more about the NABC, uh, visit nabc.com.